Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can make sure that uh, you're in fellowship and ready to study the word this evening. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you have been so gracious to us. Your grace is unmerited, undeserved favor. That means that it is given to us without regard to who we are, what we've done, whether we deserve it or we don't deserve it. It is freely given on the basis of your own integrity, your own righteousness, your own love, and that we are the uh, grateful beneficiaries of your grace. And Father, we're thankful that our salvation is not dependent upon who we are, upon what we've done, upon successes or failures, but completely and totally upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and totally upon faith in him. And Father, we pray now tonight as we continue our study in Romans that you might help us to have a better grasp of grace and integrity and righteousness and that we might see the foundation of this in our own uh, spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are starting Romans chapter 2 this evening. Romans chapter 2. So you can turn uh, with me to Romans 2, but make sure you have Romans 1 handy for a few moments of review. Now here's a question that everybody should think through. If you were to die today, if you were to have a heart attack right now in your pew, or if you were to have a stroke on the way home or an automobile accident on the way home or die in your sleep this evening, and you were to appear in the presence of God entering into heaven, you know, you don't enter in through the pearly gates under the control of St. Peter. That is not what the Bible teaches. So you die, and you are immediately in the presence of heaven. And for the sake of the illustration, God says, why should I let you into my heaven? Now, I've asked that question to people before, and uh, it just sort of uh, befuddles them because they never quite thought of it that way. But I think that's an important thing to think about. It's God's heaven. It's his house. He has certain standards about the kind of people that come into his house. You do too. You go to the front door when the doorbell rings, and uh, for most of you, you probably look through a peephole or you look through the blinds or the window to see who is out there because you're not going to just open the door for anybody. There are certain standards that have to be met before you even open the door to see who's there. And then there's further standards that have to be met before you're going to invite them into the house. If uh, there's somebody you know or they are wearing uh, the uniform of fire department or 
police officer or city official, something like that. You're going to handle it one way. If it is a service person coming to fix your uh, dishwasher, your stove, or air conditioner, or something like that, then they'll have a, an appropriate uniform on. And so they meet various standards that you've set as to whether or not you're going to allow uh, somebody into your house. Either you know them or they are someone that uh, has uh, the right authorization, they work for the right person, something like that, uh, to let them to let them in. That standard would be referred to in either the Old Testament or the New Testament by a word we find frequently in Romans, which is the word righteousness. Uh, righteousness means something that is according to a standard. And so if you're going to let somebody come into your home, they're going to meet the standard that you've set. Well, God is the same way. If he's going to let somebody come into heaven, he's the one who sets the standard. He's not going to say, well, why do you think you ought to be here on your terms? No, he he wants you to uh, measure up to his standard, and he's not going to let you in just because you think that you have the right to be in there. Uh, God has a righteous character, and he demands uh, that anyone who comes into heaven meets his righteous uh, standard and his righteous character. And this is why Paul is writing this epistle to the Romans, is to explain how what God's standard is and how it can be met and how that standard of God's character is then displayed and worked out within the framework of human history and individual lives. So he sets forth this principle, as we see in those key verses at the beginning, or actually in the middle of Romans chapter 1, in verses 17 to 20. Now in verse 17, he lays down the theme verse for Romans. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so you see that the word there for righteousness in the Greek is dikaiosune. It has that ending in on it. The S-U-N-E ending is an ending that indicates the quality of something. And then in the quote from uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, we read, The righteous uh, shall live by faith. And the word for righteous there is the noun dikaios. And you can tell just by looking at that that there are there's a similarity there, and dikaiosune is a form of the word dikaios, righteousness or justice. That word group can mean either one. Righteousness is the standard of something. Justice is meeting the standard. In the Old Testament, the word group is built on uh, tzedek. Tzedek is the noun. Tzedek, the verb. Tzedek is uh, another form of the noun related to uh, dikaiosune. Now, in Romans 1.18, in the next verse, we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And the Greek word there for unrighteousness is the noun adikia. And we look at that, and you can see that uh, if you take that initial letter A off, which is like our prefix UN, it negates the noun, that you see that same D-I-K, which is the real the semantic root of dikaiosune, dikaios. It's, it's that word group. And so, again, there's this contrast between 
Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God and the righteous shall live by faith and the wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth uh, in or by unrighteousness. Now, <clears throat> the this difference between verse 17 and verse 18 is that you see that God's approval is directed towards the righteous, but his disapproval is directed towards the unrighteous. And the phrase that is used to express that is the wrath of God. And, and <clears throat> trust me, again and again and again, I think that people want to see that, or a lot of folks want to see something emotive in that. And it's just not really an emotive term. It's an anthropomorphism or an anthropopathism, actually, that indicates the harshness or the strength of God's, uh, God's justice in a negative sense, the, the harshness of the penalty of violating his righteousness. And the other thing that we see with wrath, if we look at how it is used in the Scripture, and especially in Romans, it has a primary focus on wrath, that is the outpouring of God's discipline or judgment on human beings in time, that is, within history, not a future wrath such as the tribulation period, although in First uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, Jesus saves us from the wrath to come. Obviously, that's future because of the addition of the word to come there. And, and in some places, wrath to come does speak of the rapture. But in a lot of places especially in this section of Romans, it's talking about the present tense outpouring of God's wrath. The wrath of God is revealed, that is ongoing in present time, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in, un, uh, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, <clears throat> as we look at this, and from verse uh, 18 on, Paul speaks about how God's wrath or his judgment is going to be applied to those who are unrighteous. And we saw one category of the unrighteous in verses uh, 24 down through verse 32. And that has to do with a form of unrighteousness or those who have rejected God, and it degenerates into immoral degeneracy. Now, the thing that's interesting in this that I didn't pick up until this afternoon as I'm crawling through the grammar again, is when you come to verse 1 of chapter 2, notice that there is a therefore there. Now, it's not the normal Greek word that you find for therefore, which is the, the word un. It's the, the Greek word dio. And dio is the same word you find in verse 24. So you have sort of an introduction to this section dealing with the wrath of God going, being poured out on the unrighteousness of men. And you have one category expressed by the first inference, D.O., in 124. And then you shift to another category of application of his justice starting in chapter 2, uh, verse 1. And so uh, what we see is this breakdown of two different categories of degeneracy. Now, here's a uh, graphic description of the sin nature. Sin nature is driven by the core motivation of the lust patterns, a variety of lusts that are, that, and we all have them to one degree or another. Everybody's different. You have everything from power lust, approbation lust, 
money lust, materialism lust, uh, sexual lust, all kinds of different lust patterns, just desire on steroids that you want to have certain things more that beyond anything that is legitimate. And the way you perceive getting those is going to be characterized by certain um, certain trends, and each of us have different trends, and your trends can change over the years. You may be a, a teenager, a rebellious teenager, and your trend is towards uh, antinomianism or licentiousness, and you just don't want any boundaries, and you just hate authority, and you want to do everything the way you want to do it. And then as you get a little bit older, uh, all of a sudden you look at these things that are done in, that are so immoral and you react and you go to the other extreme, sort of like most baby boomers. They were the free love children of the, of the 60s, and now their leaders are committing all kinds of uh, sexual sins out there in public, on Facebook, on Twitter, or whatever it is, and they react to it in, 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 in this same kind of polarization that we uh, <clears throat> have talked about many times. So people tend to trend in one or the other direction, although it may, uh, it may vary. One day you're this way, the next day you're this way, or in some areas of life you're licentious, and in other areas of life you're self-righteous and you are uh, very uh, legalistic and ascetic. So they go, and if these trends are allowed to work themselves out over time, which is what we studied in verses 24 to 32 of the last chapter where where God gave them over, basically God allowing people to 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 work out the consequences of their negative volition, then you're going to end up in one of two categories, moral degeneracy and immoral degeneracy. Now, most people only think of degeneracy in terms of, of uh, something immoral. But someone who is... Uh, self-righteously moral, is so mired in his own arrogance that, and he is so degenerate in his arrogance that that uh, people don't often recognize that. I'm a fan of uh, a book, fiction book series. I've always loved reading reading, uh, murder mysteries and suspense novels and things like that. And, And I also like the Middle Ages. And so uh, Ellis Peters, who was a- actually the pen name for a British author who was a uh, an expert, had a Ph.D. In, in the Middle Ages, developed a uh, character, sort of a Sherlock Holmes type of character, character called Cadfile. And uh, Cadfile was played by Derek Jacoby on uh, Mis- Mer- Mystery uh, Masterpiece Theater back in the 80s. And I like watching those. And there's one character that was in the, in the books that is played just perfectly in the in the show and one of the other monks and every time Cadfile does anything this other this other monk just looks down his nose at him I mean he just has the haughtiest arrogant self-righteous demeanor of anybody I have ever seen and he just plays the role perfectly and that's the moral degenerate now scripturally we look at the moral degenerate in terms of so many of the Pharisees they are just loaded with all kinds of arrogance and so proud that they uh, go to the temple three times a day, pray seven times a day, do all of these good deeds, follow the Torah according to their standards, and yet internally they're just they're, Jesus accused them of being hypocrites and that they were uh, arrogant and that they had no real care, concern, compassion for the people whatsoever, 
they were just filled with their own uh, sense of self-importance, and they were self-righteous. And that's the moral degenerate. No sense of grace, no sense of humility whatsoever. He just He's morally over the edge, morally degenerate. So you have those two different trends. Now, what Paul has dealt with in Romans 1 is the consequence of suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness in relation to the immoral degenerate. And now in chapter 1, I mean, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 1, uh, down into uh, through, through the entire chapter 2, he deals with the, the consequence of what some have called the moralist because he emphasizes his own morality as being good enough to get into God's heaven. Uh, others call him self-righteous. But see, self-righteous, the problem with using that term, he is self-righteous. But it sounds as if he is... Um, he comes across, necessarily comes across that way, and they don't necessarily come across that way. They just feel like they're good, good people. They're not doing anything wrong. They're they're doing the best they can, and they're better than anybody else. But they don't necessarily come across in an overt uh, arrogance like uh, like some people do, and others have a pseudo humility. And so you don't see the fact that they just feel like they're good enough to get into heaven because they're just basically a nice person and they've done well and they're sincere. Uh, never think that they could be sincerely wrong, but they are sincere. So and when we get into chapter 2, Paul is talking about the moralist and the beginning, first uh, 11, church, uh, 11 verses, uh, really focus on a, the moralist, and it could be either a Gentile or it could be a Jew. It doesn't become clear that he's applying this to the Jew, Jewish self-righteous like the Pharisees until he gets down to verse 12 when he begins to talk about the law. Now, when he gets into the second part of this and he begins to uh, critique the Jewish moralist, he refers to them as as the Jew, just as the Apostle John does in the Gospel of John. But he's not, these are not terms that that are being used in an offensive or in a um, an anti-Semitic way. There are people that have come along over the years and tried to accuse John, uh, author of John's Gospel, being anti-Semitic because he would refer to the Jews. But he's referring to the leaders of the Jews and the Jewish religious leaders, and he was Jewish himself. The Apostle Paul was always uh, very, in, in, in the right sense of the term, very uh, proud of the fact that he was Jewish, and he cared tremendously about the Jewish people, and when he come when we come to Romans nine through chapters nine through eleven, we'll see this. For in the beginning of that section, Paul says in chapter nine verse three, that I could wish that I myself were accursed for Christ, for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, that is the Jews. So there's no sense of any hostility or negative attitude towards Jews as Jews. That's not what he's doing. It's not a racial issue with him at all when he's talking about the Jews in Romans chapter 2. That's not a, <clears throat> it's not an anti-Semitic uh, way. I mean, anybody who would say that just doesn't understand Paul. And he refers to his countrymen according to the flesh who are Israelites to whom pertains the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. And he doesn't use a past tense there. He's saying right now today, the, the Jews are still the ones who have the rights to 
all of these things, the adoption, the adopted as a nation, adopted as, as God's son, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the Mosaic law, the serving God, and the promises, these all belong uh, to the Jewish people. Romans 9, 5, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. So he is very much pro Jewish. He is anti-Pharisee. He's anti-Sadducee. He is anti the Judaistic religious concept that by works you can gain approval with God. And that's not unique to Judaism. Every religious system in the world other than biblical Christianity puts an emphasis on works. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam certainly all have this emphasis on external works that to be able to get into heaven you have to be morally upright but yet we ought to ask the question how many of these folks who are so so uh, dedicated to their hinduism someone like mahatma gandhi and he was just terribly he was a sexual pervert i mean he just went from i mean he was worse than bad but yet he's you know got this image of being the great follower of Hinduism. You have others like uh, uh, Muhammad and Islam and numerous others down through the ages who are, on the one hand, they claim to be uh, so devout, and on the other hand, they go out and they murder hundreds or thousands of people and constantly promote violence. So uh, none of those who seem to advocate a system of morality ever follow it. And that's what Paul's going to point out in chapter 2 is that even those who uh, avow a, a strong system of morality d- can't measure up. That's what he discovered. And as he said, he was a, uh, a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. No one, according to the Mosaic Law, was more consistent and more rigid in their application of the Mosaic Law than he was. And then one day, as he's thinking through the Ten Commandments, and he got to the last commandment that said he thought he was perfect on all of them, got an A-plus on the first nine. And he got to the ten, the tenth commandment, which had to do with coveting, a, a mental attitude sin of desiring something, lusting for something. And he knew that he was, he was done for. That was it. He, this will come out in Romans chapter 7, that, that he had a mental attitude sin. And the principle was that if you were guilty of one, the smallest infraction of the law, you were guilty of breaking the entire law, every single commandment. If you broke one, you broke them all. And that is what finally got through to him is that he could never measure up because he had uh, broken at least one, and that meant he was guilty of the entire law. No human being can measure up to the absolute perfect standard of God. And so Paul's focus here is not one that is condemning Jews as Jews, He's condemning the approach of Pharisaic Judaism to righteousness through through works. And so as he gets into this, he's going to show that on the basis of divine revelation, as we get into this, the first uh, (coughs) sections of uh, this second chapter, he's going to show that on the basis of divine revelation, All are condemned, Jew and Gentile. The most reprobate, perverted, pagan Gentile is no better 
than the most righteous, moral, religiously observant Jew. And the reason is because both the good and the bad come out of that sin nature, that fallen nature that everybody has. And if you don't believe in a biblical doctrine of uh, total depravity, that is in the sense of having sin um, imputed from Adam, which is what the scriptures teach, then all you have to do is recognize that if you have committed a sin, then from that point on you're under that same condemnation, condemnation no matter what the sin is, whether it's some little small lie or whether it's arrogance, whether it's anger, uh, whether it's uh, sexual lust, whatever it might be. So everybody is condemned, and Paul makes that so clear. If you're condemned, well, how in the world can you go forward in a relationship with God? So his second conclusion in relation to his argument that all are without excuse is in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, he says, you are without excuse, or the New King James translated it, inexcusable. It is the same word. Same Greek word that's used in 118, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, uh, <clears throat> because that which is known of God is manifest in them, uh, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible, attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that what? They are without excuse. Same word. It's only used two times in the New Testament, it's both times here so this sets up the his his structure here in romans 1 and romans 2 all are without excuse the first therefore the first inference from this is the immoral degeneracy that flows and is outlined that we studied in chapter 1 verse 24 to 32 and then uh, the second begins in chapter 2 so therefore he says you are <coughs> Also, without excuse, O man, and the man he defines here is going to be the man who is judging others. Now, when we look at the structure, going back to Romans 1, 18, 19, and 20, the emphasis there is that all, that God's wrath is against unrighteousness and against men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then when we get into and into chapter 2, we'll see that God's wrath is also the subject. For in verse 5 we read, But in accordance with your hardness, the hardness of your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And then in verse 8, But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath so he's still talking about the consequences of wrath now when did i say this wrath of god comes comes now we're not talking about the future we're not talking about the judgment seat of christ we're not talking about the tribulation we're not talking about uh the great white throne judgment the judgment of the end of time we're talking about wrath now that's when god's wrath is poured out in verses 24 to 32 is in present time so we're still talking about um, about present time. So we read in, <clears throat> in verse 1. Let me back up to 1 here. Therefore, Paul says, You're inexcusable, or you are without excuse, O man. Whoever you are 
who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same thing. Now, as he draws this conclusion at the beginning, there are three things that we should note here. I've already noted them, but I want to make sure you get all three. First of all, he's drawing a conclusion which is not a conclusion from the list of sins or the stages of sins in verses 24 to 32, but it's a conclusion that comes from the rejection of God and rejection of the evidence of God's, uh, God's existence, which he described in verses 18 through 20. So verse 24 gives one consequence, one conclusion. Chapter 2, verse 1 gives a second conclusion. Second thing we see is that with this therefore, Paul transitions from the first group of immoral degenerates who are without excuse to the second group of moral degenerates of the self-righteous who are also without excuse. And that both groups come under the judgment of God, the wrath of God, as is evident from the statements in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. So what Paul says in this section is that human beings are going to react in one of three ways to the knowledge of the existence of God. The first way they're going to react is they're going to reject it, and then as God gives them, uh, takes away the restraint of their sin nature, they are going to spiral down in immoral degeneracy. The second group is going to reject the existence of God, and God is going to allow them to spiral down in moral degeneracy. And then the third group reflects those who want to accept the existence of God, but on his terms rather than on their terms. These are the people who, when in our little illustration... When they show up at the entrance to heaven and God says, why should I let you into heaven? They're going to say, well, you set a standard and I couldn't meet the standard, but Jesus Christ met the standard and that's the reason you should let me into heaven is because I trusted in him. The others are going to show up and they're going to say, well, I really didn't believe in you, but according to my standards, I did okay. And God's going to say, well, your standards don't count. That's not going to get you anywhere. And so that's how Paul, is, Paul develops this particular section. Now, this idea that all have sinned and come under a judgment of God, which is what his conclusion will be in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, is not some New Testament Christian teaching. This goes back into the Old Testament. And one passage that makes it very clear in the Old Testament and Hebrew Scriptures is Isaiah 53, verse 6. And Isaiah is talking about the Jewish people, the entire Jewish nation, under the covenant <clears throat> to Moses. And that's what he, who he's referring to when he says all. It's the Hebrew word kol. It refers to all in the nation that are under that covenant. And then he compares them to sheep. He says all of us, literally, all of us, are like sheep, comparison to sheep. Sheep have absolutely no ability to take care of themselves. If God is so brilliant that he created at least one creature I know of 
that can't function, can't live, can't survive without man, and is a perfect illustration of why evolution can, could never be true. Evolution, Darwinian evolution, is based on the assumption of the survival of the fittest, that, there is, uh, that the reason you have certain species is because the, they survive with the various traits that they have because they were more fit to face the challenges of survival than uh, other, others who had different mutations. So it, it presumes something of fitness on the part of these species. Sheep have no fitness. Sheep can, a, a sheep cannot survive for one day without human beings. Human beings provide everything. The shepherd provides everything for the sheep. If, if the shepherd isn't there, the sheep can't even find a drink of water if they're standing in the water. And if the water is polluted, uh, they would probably drink it anyway and die from it. Sheep have no sense whatsoever. They're a perfect illustration of what, uh, how human beings are in terms of their understanding of God. They just, they're, they're blind, they're dumb, they're, they have no sense whatsoever, and they constantly make mistakes. And that's why the scriptures constantly compare human beings to sheep. It's not a compliment. God's not talking about how cute they are and how soft and cuddly and how that wool just feels so good and everything. That's not the point of comparison. The point of comparison is sheep are stupid and helpless and can't do anything to take care of themselves except the wrong thing, and so are people. So, so God just insults us every time he makes this comparison with sheep, and yet people somehow have uh, blotted that out and, and denied it all. So God compares us to sheep. And um, <clears throat> to finish my point there about sheep and evolution, in the concept of Darwin, Darwinian evolution, nothing can survive unless it can do it on its own. Sheep can't survive without men. So that shows that sheep could not have evolved hundreds of thousands or millions of years before human beings and survived because they never would have made it. The first sheep would have died. It would have been another 100 million years before the second one came along, and he would have died because there's no man there. There's no human being there to take care of it. And so right there you have the one piece of evidence that completely destroys the entire argument of survival of the fittest. Of course, survival of the fittest really is a poor argument. Survival doesn't explain arrival. The survival of the fittest doesn't explain how they got there in the first place. So it's just a dodge. It's another piece of, of uh, sophistry and leisure domain to throw people off course. See, survival of the fittest. And so people just sit there and they can't answer it at all and they just have their mouth open and say, oh, that's so smart. But no, they didn't explain the arrival of the fittest, so it's just fooled you. You're just acting like a sheep again. So Isaiah says all of us, all of us, that is the Jewish people, who at that stage in their history had rejected God and plunged into idolatry. And he says all of us like sheep have gone astray. Every single one. He doesn't leave, he doesn't say most of us, he doesn't say with the exception of the prophets who still worship Yahweh. He says all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. It applies 100% to every single person. We have turned everyone to his own way. 
And the word there that's translated way is the Hebrew word derek, which means a path or a road. It's the same word that's used in Proverbs when it says there is a way, there is a path or a road that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. Same word. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own path. We've all decided that every path leads to God, except one. That's Christianity because they say that they're the exclusive path. So we can't include them because they want to do it their own way, and so they're bad, they're evil, they're wicked, because they say they're the only ones who know the way to God. And so that's wrong. Everybody else can be right because they say every way leads to God. But if you look at all these other ways, they're all mutually contradictory. So either people are stupid or God is stupid, and their assumption is every way lead to God because God's stupid, but he's just a kind old man out there. And that just doesn't fit any kind of sense. But it makes them feel good because they're suppressing truth in unrighteousness. Now, the other translation that I have up there on the screen is from the uh, Hebrew, uh, from the Tanakh. That is the Jewish translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And it says the same thing. We all went astray like sheep, each going his own way, and the Lord visited upon him the guilt of all of us. Well, who's the him? See, in, in the uh, Tanakh, it's a lowercase. They, they haven't identified who the him is. But the Lord visited upon him the guilt of all of us. Well, who's the him? When they answer that, then you're going to have some because the him is the one who takes away sin according to this verse. So who is that? Well, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in Romans 2, Paul goes on to say, therefore, you are without excuse. And he's talking to the self-righteous moralist, the person who thinks that somehow by religious works, by moral effort, by ethics, by his own integrity, he can, he can, be, um, he can gain the uh, approval of God. And so he starts off and he says, O oh man, whoever you are who judge. And that's really not a very good way of um, a very good way of translating uh, that particular verse. It is all you who judge or anyone who judges. And so that probably would make a little better sense in um, in modern English. Anyone who judges. And the word that is used there is a participial form of crino. And crino has a wide range of meanings. It has the idea of separating the idea, or distinguishing or exercising discernment in decision-making, considering, reflecting upon something. The idea of judging in the act of a judge, a legal judge who's sitting at, on the bench and he's adjudicating a trial and deciding if someone's guilty or innocent. Uh, it has the idea of deciding something. So the question that we have to address here is, what does Paul mean by judging here? If he says, anyone who judges, does that mean you've got to get rid of all the courts? Does that mean you can't exercise discernment? Let's say you're, uh, you are an employ employer and you're interviewing somebody from a job. Does that mean you can't exercise discernment or evaluate the various people who come and sit in front of you to... Um, uh, apply for the job? Of course not. That would be silly. We all sort of intuitively know that, but we never really uh, uh, talk about it. Uh, he says it's really the idea here of judging in the sense of being God. 
making negative judgments about whether or not a person is approved by God. It's exemplified in the Gospels by the Pharisee who comes into the temple and he sees the beggar outside and he looks down his nose at him and he says, well, thank God I'm not like him. See, that's judging. That's saying I'm better than he is. I'm superior to him in the eyes of God. That's, that's pure arrogance uh, based on his status, based on his training, based on his education, just thinking he's inherently better than everybody else. He's judging the beggar, and the beggar is just saying, Lord, I'm praying, I'm coming to you. I don't have anything to bring. All I can do is depend upon your grace. So this is the sense of judge here is in that sense of that arrogant condemnation of others where the person judging has no right, no knowledge, no basis to do that. So Paul says, whoever it is of you who make a judgment like that, and there's nobody who hasn't done that in a mental attitude sin, that we haven't looked at somebody at some point in life and said, I'm just glad I'm better than you are. Whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge in another, you condemn yourself. Whenever you judge that sin in somebody else, you condemn yourself on the same basis of judgment. For, Paul goes on to say, for you who judge practice the same things. And then he goes on in verse 2 to say, but we know that the judgment of God is according to the truth. There's a standard, and he says it's according to the truth. The article is there. It indicates a specific, absolute, universal, transcendent truth. The judgment of God is according to truth. Why? Because God knows everything. First of all, God's standard is perfectly righteous. That's his character. God is holy. He is without sin. In him there is no darkness at all, the Scripture says. That the judge, so God is perfectly righteous. Second, God is omniscient. He knows all the facts. There's not one little bitty fact that escapes his knowledge and understanding. So he knows all the facts, so he, only he can make a perfect decision. And because he is absolute truth, and in him there, he, and it's impossible for him to lie, then there is, there's no shadow there. So God's judgment is going to be according to a perfect Standard, and only he can judge according to a perfect standard, and his judgment is against those who practice such things, not the ones who are committing all of those sins over in chapter 1, but the ones who aren't committing any of those sins and thinking that they're superior to those who are because they're not doing those things. So their arrogance makes them just as guilty as the arrogance of those who are immoral. And Paul uses an interesting word here. He uses the Greek word oida. Gnosko is another word in the Greek for knowledge. Gnosko has the idea of coming to learn something, going through the process of studying growth and learning, whereas oida has to do with, uh, with seeing something intuitively. You, you would use oida. Oida is used by, in the Gospel of John to refer to the omniscience of God. But it's also used of a recognizing a self-evident conclusion. So if you understand the premise and you understand the major premise and the minor premise and the uh, conclusion is obvious from those, the, the, the two premises, then you know it instantly or intuitively. And he says, we know 
that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice these things. And so now he drives it home. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, maybe not the identical same sin, but you're categorically you're committing the same kinds of sin, the same categories of sin as the one you're judging. Your judging is just as arrogant as his arrogant sexual immorality or homosexuality or whatever. You're just, it, it's, it all flows from arrogance. So he says, do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? So you th- we think that because we're not committing all of those horrible sins of those people we don't like, that somehow we're not going to get the same judgment they are. But then what Paul is saying is, no, even the moralist is just as guilty of, of sin and falling short of the glory of God as the self-righteous, I mean, as the, uh, as, as the licentious and as the, the one who's involved in all of the immoral degeneracy. Now, what Paul says in these three verses is just a reflection of what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 7. So just hold your place there in Romans 2, and let's turn over to Matthew chapter 7. And we see that Paul just is an excellent student of understanding what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 5 and following. In this section of Matthew, through the end of chapter 7, we have what is usually referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, in this section, Jesus is, it's the section that begins with the Beatitudes, and people have always had trouble trying to figure out how to interpret these things. And I'm not going to get off on that. But the basic principle is Jesus is, is addressing a problem. The problem is that within first century Judaism, what had happened is the Pharisees, and this had developed really over the, la- the previous 200 to 300 years, that in order to keep the Jews from violating the, the, the Torah, they had built a wall around the Torah of various traditions and various uh, prohibitions so that as long as people didn't break those, then you knew that they wouldn't break any of the 613 commandments in the Torah. And so those traditions, though, came to have the same authority as the 613 commandments in the Mosaic Law. And so the, the Pharisees are putting this burden on the people that they have to not only uh, watch out for the 613 commandments and prohibitions, but they can't violate the 1,500 other regulations and uh, traditions that had that they had built up around uh, the observance of the Torah. And so he comes to the issue of the real problem here is arrogance and mental attitude sins. And so Jesus does this, uh, addresses this in the first... Um, Five verses here of Matthew 7. He says, judge not that you be not judged. Now, again, he's using the verb krina, same verb that we have over in Romans. But he's not talking about don't make evaluations. Uh, He's not talking about don't make decisions. He's not saying it's wrong to have judges in a courtroom. He's talking about the fact that judgments were made by the Pharisees as to individual spiritual status based on their observance of that person's external behavior. 
And that's what's under condemnation by Jesus. He's saying nobody can put themselves in God's place and look at somebody and determine whether they are in a right standing with God or not. Part of the reason is because we all sin at times, and our standing before God is based on his grace and not based on our behavior. So Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, in other words, the basis of your self-righteous, vindictive criticism of somebody is the basis for your judgment as well. And with the measure you meet out, it shall be measured to you again. In other words, what he's saying is, first of all, the first sin is judging somebody, and that means condemning them on the basis of their behavior in terms of their spiritual status with God. This just isn't being critical of somebody. This goes far beyond that. This has to do with determining their their spiritual standing before God. And so you're that's the first sin is judging somebody. The second sin, the second issue that comes along is that you're now going to be judged on the basis of the judgment, the criticism that you made of the other person, and it's going to be given, that measurement, that discipline is going to be given to you. So you're going to judge somebody, and you're going to get discipline for that, and then that discipline is going to be compounded again as it's brought back on you, and then um, Jesus begins to illustrate it in verse 3. He says, why do you behold the mote that is in your brother's eye? Uh a moat is uh, something very small or tiny. And he said, but you don't consider the beam that is, I'll just paraphrase, the railroad tie that's in your eye. So you're all concerned that this other person is doing some little something that you really don't like, and the whole time is your life is just loaded with these major glaring errors. And rather than focusing on your issues, your problems, your sins, your failures, what you're doing is you're spending all your time running down somebody else for theirs. Verse 4, Jesus said, Or how will you say to your brother, Let me pull out the moat, that is, that little piece of sand in your eye. And Jesus says, And behold, how can you even see the sand in your eye? You've got a log jam in yours. How can you even see the sand, the grain of sand that's in somebody else's eye? And then the accusation, You hypocrite, first... Cast out the beam of your own eye. In other words, solve your own problems first and don't worry about running around and solving the sins of whatever in everybody else's life. Uh, First cast out the beam out of your own eye and then you shall see clearly to cast out the moat out of your brother's eye. He's not advocating that it's our job to go around and take the moat out of everybody else's eye. What he's advocating is we need to stay out of everybody else's business until we get reach perfection. Since that won't happen until you get to heaven, you've got enough to keep busy by just taking care of your own spiritual life and not trying to figure out how good or bad everybody else's spiritual life is. Now, I hear an objection already. Well, wait a minute. Christianity just seems to be judging people, saying you can't get to heaven unless you trust in Jesus. But that's not a judgment in this sense. That is saying, look, there is a standard for getting into God's heaven. And God has revealed that standard to us. Now, I'm not judging somebody that it's not my business to decide whether or not they're going to get to heaven. It's my business to tell them the gospel so that they can get to heaven. 
God's the one who knows what they believe. And there's, I believe there's a lot of people who are uh, what I used to hear called uh, Clairol Christians. You know, only their hairdresser knew for sure. Or secret service Christians. You know, they're undercover. Nobody really knows it. And there are two in the Bible that are mentioned. There were two Pharisees in the Gospel of John that were secret service Christians. Nobody knew they had trusted in Jesus as Messiah. That was Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. And John tells us that there were many other Pharisees who had believed in Jesus, but because of the hostility and the reaction and the uh, uh, negative impact that would have on their friends and their families, they didn't make it known. And John doesn't really condemn them for that. And I think down through the ages and throughout history, there have been many people who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior, but they've stayed undercover. Now, that may impact and harm their spiritual life. That's not my decision. But Scripture tells us that there's only one way to heaven, that's to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And a person can believe that and be saved and not ever tell anybody. You know that, And we've gone through this before, and I'll go through it again when we get there in Romans chapter 10. This idea that you have to tell people that you got saved, you have to walk an aisle, raise your hand, make a public profession of faith, that's not in the Scriptures. Nowhere... Is that said? And the verse that's always used for that is to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth isn't talking about justification or getting into heaven. It's talking about something completely different. So Jesus is making the same condemnation here that Paul makes in Romans 2, and that is to that, that it's nobody's position to judge, condemn spiritually other people for their flaws or failures because all have sinned. My sins may not be your sins. Your sins may disgust me, but my sins would probably disgust you. We are all in that same boat. And the issue is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for everyone's sin, and so we don't have any right to look across the congregation and say, well, I'm sure glad so-and-so's here tonight. They really need to hear this Bible class. Well... You need to be listening, too, because that attitude is what is, what is being condemned. And so then Paul comes to, in verse 4, turn back to Romans. Verse 4, Paul comes back to a second rhetorical question here to make his point. He says, oh, sitting here going to Acts, it's not Tuesday night, it's Thursday night, so in Acts, Romans 2. He says, do you not, or do you despise, his first rhetorical question, he said in verse 3, do you think that you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? And of course, the answer is obviously no. But notice that how many times we've seen words related to judge. In verse 1, you had those who judge, uh, you who judge among you, condemn yourself, you who judge, practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God in verse 2, verse 3, and do you think, O oh man, you who judge, uh, you just circle it. Go through your Bible, circle every time you have the word judgment there, and you can certainly see that's the major focus here is on uh, the wrong kind of judging. So the answer to the rhetorical question of verse 3 is no. And then in verse 4 we have, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? And, of course, the answer there is, again, yes. 
they are despising the grace of God because they've decided they're, rather than accepting a free gift, they want to earn it. And before you think, oh, how pathetic, let me tell you, the hardest thing I find for Christians to understand is grace orientation. Because we live in a society that says you don't get anything for nothing. And how many times you see Christians who somebody wants to do something for them or give them something and they feel, and it's good manners. I'm not knocking it. It's nice to be this way. And they feel compelled that they have to do something in return. But that flows out of a legalistic mentality. God says, I'm going to give something to you, and you don't have to do anything to earn it. And so often, you, I remember a pastor I, I, I was uh, uh, spending a lot of time on, with when I first got out of seminary, and he said, now look, you just got out of seminary, you don't have any money, and your money's no good. I will take you out. Every time we go to lunch, I'm buying. Every time we go to breakfast, I'm buying. We're going to settle that right now because you don't have anything. And the Lord's been gracious to me, and so that's just going to take care of it. And if you can't understand that, you're not going to understand grace. And and it just seems to bother people. We think, oh, you know, if he, they, that person takes me out to dinner this week, I've got to return next week. There's a, there's a sense in which that reflects legalism. Now, I'm not saying that that's, that shouldn't be part of good manners and consideration. It should. But it shouldn't be flowing out of a legalistic mentality. It should be flowing out of a sense that you want to outgive the other person, outgrace the other person, not, well, they were good to me, so I need to be good back. You're not earning it or requiring it. It's a different sort of mentality. So what Paul says here is that when the grace of God is rejected and you put the emphasis on works, you are in, in essence despising the fullness of God's goodness, his patience, his long-suffering, and that you don't understand, you're not knowing, or literally it's a causal participle there, because you don't know that the goodness of God, all of these blessings lead you to repentance. It's for the purpose, not of thinking that somehow you got away with it, but to change your mind, to turn back to God, to uh, accept the free offer of grace. And then in verse 5, Paul concludes this three-verse, or five-verse section, rather. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, the heart is hard and it's impenitent. Two ideas there. We'll look at the words in a second. Because of the hardness of your heart and your impenitent heart, that means your refusal to turn, to uh, turn back to God, to change your mind, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now, those two words, hardness and impenitent heart, are the Greek words sclerotes for hardness and ah metanoetas, or ah metan met from metanoeo, the verb. Uh, in this case, it's the noun, metanoia that the first represents a hardness. It's the hardness of your heart. You have strengthened your heart against God, just like Pharaoh did at the Exodus. And it's impenitent. It's not going to turn. It's not going to say, I was wrong, God was right. There's no sense of humility or turning to God. 
And what you're doing is, is you're, you're loading up your savings account with divine discipline. This is to an unbeliever. God's going to, you're going to reap the consequences of what you have sowed. And the word there translated treasuring up is the present active indicative of the Greek word uh, thesaurizo. Guess what English word we get from that? Thesaurus, where we have a treasury of words. Uh, You treasure, you store something up. And so what happens is the more the unbeliever rejects the grace of God and the more he refuses to turn, the more he stores up divine discipline. Now, this isn't talking about end-time discipline. Don't shift gears here and say, oh, all of a sudden we're talking about future wrath. The, the wrath that is revealed by God in verse 18 is explained in present time in verses 24 to 32. The wrath of God that is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, which includes the moral arrogance of the moral degenerate, is being revealed in time. This is, talk, this is the same outpouring of divine discipline and judgment in time as it did in the previous previous chapter. And so what Paul has done here in these first five, uh, or actually six verses, when we get into the, uh, verse six, we get into a quote uh, from the Old Testament stated many times that God will render to each one according to his deeds. Yes, there is judgment according to works because the works don't measure up. They can't measure up because they're not dealt with by the, by the uh, imputed righteousness of Christ. There's divine discipline on the one who rejects uh, the grace of God and seeks to do it all on his own. And so we'll come back next time and get into uh, a little further look into this judgment that's going on starting in verse 5 because it's going to be contrasted somewhat to those. You have those who receive eternal life in verse 7 and verse 8, and there's a lot of questions that come up there. But the conclusion is there's no partiality with God. God is going to judge the moral degenerate and the immoral degenerate alike because they just don't measure up to his standards. The only one way to get his standard, and that is by faith in Christ. And then just like Abraham in the Hebrew Scripture, just like Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, God said on the basis of faith, I will give you righteousness, imputed righteousness. And on that basis then you're justified. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to come to understand that it's just not anything we do. We can't bring anything to you. We can only relax and rest in the fact that you have done everything for us and you just want us to accept it as a free gift. And all of our life is that way. The entire spiritual life is based on on grace and realizing that you have done it all and that we are to rest and relax in your word, in your power, in your ability, and all that you've given us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.